This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Nong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The Florida Aquarium, an inspiring and signature tourist destination in Tampa, highlights Florida native species and other aquatic animals from around the world. My guest today, Dr. Ari Fastukian, oversees the health and welfare of this very diverse collection of organisms. Join us as Dr. Ari shares his career path and discusses his role there as well as other amazing goings-on at the Florida Aquarium. We'll be right back after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite is nutrition. Pick up two bottles of Lico Chops. Get the third bottle free. New improved Lico Chops with omega-3, omega-6, vitamin E. And now, six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. Try Lico Chops. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Ari Fastukian, veterinarian at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Ari, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ron. So I, I kind of like to um, get in a little bit personal, not too, too personal at the very beginning. I want to let our listeners kind of know where you're coming from and how you became sort of a uh, fishy or aquatic person. Can you tell us a little bit about your first fish and your first aquarium? Sure. Well, I, like a lot of people, I think, we uh, always brought home the little goldfish in the bowl from the, uh, the local fair contest kind of things. I didn't really get bitten by the aquarium bug until I was probably my late teens. Uh, so my, my first, what I consider my first real aquarium was a 10-gallon tank that I packed as many uh, African Malawi cichlids as I, as I could fit into it. So how did you get interested in the aquarium hobby? So my first job was actually in a pet store. Um, and at the time, I was really into reptiles and things, but the opening that they had was in the aquatics department where I knew virtually nothing. Uh, so I spent a good six months just following people around, learning as much as I could, soaking it all up. And it's an entire world of uh, different species, different behaviors, different husbandry requirements that I had no idea existed. And uh, I spent a number of years pretty much trying to keep anything I could, uh, could get my hands on. When was that? How old were you at that time? I was uh, probably between 18 and maybe 22 uh, when I went okay. through my, my real prolific phase. Okay. And uh, during that really prolific phase, how many uh, aquariums had you had it set up at home? So I think at my peak, I probably had 16 or 17 systems set up, uh, ranging from 10 to about 150 gallons. Uh, I also found out that I could do more fancy stuff if I used other people's tanks and money. And so I actually ran a little bit of a side business for a while, uh, set up and maintaining big fish tanks for some of my uh, my family's uh, wealthier friends. Nice. And, and uh, what kind of fish did you have in those uh, 17 tanks? 
Oh, I had everything. A lot of communities. I did a little bit of corals, just Indo-Pacific stuff. I think the most fun was my, uh, I built a 120-gallon predator tank. So I had a African lungfish, some pike cichlids, some uh, uh, marble and giraffe nose catfish, pretty much any w- big, weird predator I could find. That was a pretty neat system. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, how about a, a non-fish? Did you have any non-fish pets? Yeah, I had the odd turtle here and there growing up. Uh, we had rabbits at one point and a dog. But uh, I was pretty fortunate. My family spent a lot of time uh, in the outdoors. So I grew up here in Tampa around the Hillsborough River, Fort DeSoto, Lettuce Lake Park, that sort of thing. And so even though we didn't have too many pets at home, we were still very much immersed in sort of the wildlife of uh, Florida. So... Let's move forward a little bit and uh, kind of start talking about how you got to where you are. When and how did you decide to become a veterinarian? And I guess even more specifically, what made you decide to go into aquatics? And is that kind of an easy path, you think, for uh, someone who's interested? Sure. So I went back to school a little bit late. And when I finished my undergrad degree, all I knew is I wanted to keep going to school. But the place I was at didn't have a lot in the way of uh, master's or PhD programs for things that I was interested in. I wanted to work with whole animals, not just the little bits and pieces that a lot of programs focus on in terms of genetics and things like that. I had worked as a vet tech for almost a decade at that point. And so I applied to vet school. I was a New York State resident at the time, and I managed to get into Cornell University. I was, uh, in in retrospect, incredibly uh, fortunate. Doubly fortunate in that Cornell has a pretty robust aquatic medicine program. And so I was there only for about uh, three or four months before I went to my first interest talk about uh, Aquavet, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. And uh, it was pretty much uh, one track from there. Yeah, they may not. Maybe mention uh, what is Aquavet? Sure. So Aquavet is an aquatic veterinary medicine training program for veterinary students. So it's got, uh, I think it's up to three different components now. And it's done over the summer, so between uh, between courses. And um, the first Aquavet focuses on pretty much everything even remotely related to aquatic animal medicine. So you talk about different species, their husbandry requirements, surgical and medical options, how to do diagnostics. And as we'll probably get to in a little bit, a lot of the important part of that is the husbandry. So understanding water quality, different parasites and different diseases. Uh, so that was... Uh, immediately available as an option for me when I got into vet school as an area that I could go in. And since I had had such a passion for aquariums and for all the weird and different random fish species that I'd worked with in my uh, uh, private life, uh, it seemed to make perfect sense. So um, I guess going into aquatics and making that sort of choice, was it pretty easy then to get to where you are? How would you uh, describe all the things that you needed to do to kind of get to where you, you are now? It's a fair bit of work. So uh, the veterinary degree is uh, four years on top of your uh, undergraduate work. And then to specialize, uh, to get the experience you need to specialize in aquatic animal medicine uh, usually requires doing things uh, in addition to. So you don't get a whole lot of fish medicine as part of your regular curriculum in school. So it's, it's all about seeking out additional extracurricular opportunities. I probably spent a total of nine months doing externships as a vet student at different aquaculture and aquarium facilities, pretty much learning as much as I could. And then after a year in private practice, I went and spent a year doing an internship at uh, Mystic Aquarium, all with the goal of getting as much experience as I could, getting to know as many people as I could in in the field. Uh, And that sort of set me up to succeed in my current position. Well, that's great. And, uh, you know, obviously we've known each other for a long time and it's it's always, you know, it's been great kind of watching you 
go through all of that and, and you know I, I sort of knew as a student and I think some of your colleagues knew you were going to be a you would make it to uh, where you wanted to be your, your kind of dream job so now that you're at the Florida Aquarium can you maybe give us a, a brief sort of audio walking tour I, there may be a lot of listeners that have been there especially if they're in Florida but for others can you kind of maybe give them a quick overview of what you have at the Florida Aquarium and, and sort of the style and, and um, exhibits Sure. It's a pretty neat facility. Obviously, I'm, uh, I'm biased, but um, the message for the, the aquarium pathway is basically the story of a drop of water. And so you start upstairs in the spring, the aquifer, uh, as water's coming up from down below. And so we have a lot of freshwater teleosts, bass and sunfish and uh, a number of different freshwater turtle species. Uh, and then we have a very large uh, indoor aviary. It's underneath a big glass dome that's uh, shaped like a clamshell. And so we have a, a mangrove forest, an entire swamp system set up indoors that's home to a lot of uh, both free-flighted and non-flighted birds. We do a lot of uh, rescue and rehab of uh, injured birds and other wildlife here in the area. So animals that uh, wouldn't survive their injuries in the wild uh, have a place to, to live out their lives. And then it follows that drop of water all the way into the uh, coastal waters, the brackish water, the mangrove swamps, out into the bay. Our largest exhibit is about half a million gallons. That's our, our coral reef habitat, which is home to a lot of large sharks and rays, uh, a whole host of very large teleo species. And then we go into the Waves of Wonder Gallery, which is getting into some of the other diversity of, uh, of animals around the world, not just in Florida waters, but out into the Caribbean and then even uh, even into the Pacific Ocean. Great. And yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely one of my favorite aquariums. I really, really enjoy going and visiting there. So let's talk a little bit about you and, and your role at the aquarium. Now, how, how would you describe what you do there at the aquarium? So I'm currently our acting clinical veterinarian. At the this very moment, I'm probably. So when you doing, when you say acting, do you mean you're actually not a veterinarian, or you're just pretending to be one? <laughs> so, Sorry, I, so, had, I had to say that. Absolutely, we're in the process of bringing on a second vet. We normally have two veterinarians uh, on staff uh, to manage the size of our collection. So I'm I'm wearing sort of two hats at once. Okay. So I'm I'm doing the the clinical work. So that means any animal that needs a routine exam, any animal that's sick or gets an injury comes to me which can be a lot of fun. I get to work with literally everything in our collection. I also wear a hat from a bit of an administrative standpoint. So a lot of what we do, we talked about husbandry and how important it is. So a lot of times it's not just as simple as giving an animal an antibiotic or putting a Band-Aid on its wound. We have to start looking at underlying causes of issues, which can bring us into looking at water quality or looking at nutrition and other things like that. And so uh, I'd say probably 40% of my time I spend doing research or uh, analyzing cases behind a desk. I'm also uh, currently the head for our sea turtle rehabilitation program. Uh, and so that's a, a third hat that I wear. So that's both uh, doing responding to reports of stranded or uh, injured turtles as well as managing care for those turtles when we get them back here to the aquarium. So yeah, you definitely have a lot going on. I, I can understand, I, I, I know I know how much activity is there and, and hopefully you guys will uh, get your second person there so you'll have a little bit of time to breathe. So I guess my next question then is maybe um, give us a little idea of how your uh, department is organized in terms of personnel and, and um, you know kind of what you oversee as a sort of a, as a department. Sure. So as the acting head of animal health at the moment, I oversee our two veterinary technicians, Sarah and Ashley, who are phenomenal. We also work very closely with the registrar. So that's the person who keeps track of all of the animals that we have in our collection, as well as all the permitting, obviously, for doing sea turtle rehab, 
uh, rescuing injured birds, and then overseeing a large diverse collection. We need, there's a, a surprising amount of legal paperwork that needs to be done to keep all of that running smoothly. Uh, I also work very closely with our commissary. And so, you know, while you might not think of it as being an animal health issue, being uh, aware of what we're feeding our animals, where that food's coming from, what kind of quality control we have in place uh, is really important. So there's some areas that aren't necessarily just mine, but it, it really all does come back to, to animal health. And I guess maybe a good and, and or tricky question. What do you like most about your job and what do you find the most challenging? The answer is the same for both of those things. This is inherently a challenging job compared to what veterinary medicine knows about dogs and cats or large animals, there's relatively little established or published knowledge. So every single case is a potential challenge. Every single thing that you see is potentially brand new or has only been seen by a couple other people. So that's the challenging side. One of the best things about it is that we're learning new stuff all the time. And once you identify the other people that are doing the same sorts of things that you are and establishing that network of support, this really is an exciting exploration every single day. You can have a fish species or a reptile species that people have had for a really long time, and then you talk to the right people, you see the right case, you run the right test, and you've discovered something brand new that's going to let you really support and improve the care of that species for everybody. So how would you say a veterinarian working at an aquarium, you know, such as you and your job, differ from what's happening at, at a local veterinarian, sort of a kind of a pet, your typical sort of private practice? So there's a surprising number of similarities. I have regular patients that I see for ongoing problems. They may not have owners that take them home, but their keepers know them every bit as well, if not better than any dog's owner does. Um, you don't need to spend all your time at home with them to develop those connections. And so those are the people that I'm relying on to identify if the animal is not behaving normally or isn't eating its food normally and bringing that to my attention. So uh, that relationship is very much the same. We also do a lot of what we call preventative medicine. So the kinds of things that you would do with your dog or your cat, where you take them to the vet for an exam once a year, he gets vaccines, maybe he gets dewormed or treated for parasites. We do all of that here as well. It's a lot easier to proactively identify and manage the problems before they come up. And so we do a, a lot of preventative medicine. It lets you work with those animals in a situation where they're not sick, which can be really a really positive thing rather than just waiting until there's a problem. I think the real difference, again, is sort of looking at where you have to go to get information on the species you're working with and being creative. They don't make a lot of medical equipment or tools or drugs for the animals that we work with. So we use a lot of different tools, uh, behavioral training, modifying equipment for other purposes in order to get the job done. It's not just taking your dog and back and having them held by the technician to get something done. Some of our animals couldn't be restrained if we wanted to. And so we, we put a lot of time and effort into finding ways around that so that we can still provide care for these animals. Well, that's great. And, and uh, I have a lot more questions for you. Uh, you're talking a little bit more about the animals and systems and, and some specific kind of cool cases you've been working up. But let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with the, Dr. Ari Pastuchian, veterinarian at the Florida Aquarium, after these messages from our sponsors. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? 
deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories. Party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Ari Pastukian, veterinarian at the Florida Aquarium. So Ari, I appreciate all the kind of the intro information about your uh, career path and interest sort of a uh, big picture wise. Let's talk a little bit more about animals and, and systems and cases now. So l- let's start with animals. I have to ask, what, what would you say are your top five favorite aquatic animals there at the aquarium? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I need five because it's really hard to pin down one. We have a Goliath grouper named Cletus. He is a very large fish. Cletus was actually an animal that was here when I was a, a volunteer in high school back in 1997. So Cletus is pushing probably about 30 years old. And uh, people don't realize this, but they're actually quite personable animals. So we can dive with Cletus. He enjoys tactile sensation. So this is a fish. You, you look at him from the outside and you just see a big grouper sitting there. But in fact, this is an animal that likes to come over and interact with divers. Uh, he recognizes people. So he's definitely one of my top favorites. I have a deep and abiding love for the invertebrates. And so we do have a, a young giant Pacific octopus. Those animals are always fun to work with. We do have some large sand tiger sharks. I don't get to get hands on them too often, but it's always really exciting when I do. You know, there's just nothing like being in the water with a really large predator like that. We have a loggerhead sea turtle who actually came through our rehabilitation program. He was a cold stun in 2016. We're still waiting on an official name. He goes by 263 right now. He had an entanglement injury that caused his uh, esophagus to be damaged. So he's unfortunately non-releasable, and he is uh, now uh, the star of our new Heart of the Sea exhibit. So he's a, he's a very cool uh, loggerhead turtle. He's only about 80, 90 pounds now, but adult loggerheads can break three, 400 pounds. So he's going to be a pretty impressive animal in a couple of years. And then I would say probably my last favorite, again, we got to go back to the cephalopods. Um, we do have some flamboyant cuttlefish. If you've never heard of a flamboyant cuttlefish or seen one, there's really nothing else like them. They look like little tiny balls of flame. And so we just started keeping those guys relatively recently. They're all fun to work with. Speaking of it, those are really, really cool. What's the lifespan on those flamboyants? Flamboyant cuttlefish only live for about, I want to say, six to eight months. Okay. Uh, I remember it was really, really short. Yeah, they are pretty cool. Definitely. I agree. Yeah, but in order to keep them, you have to set up a whole process to uh, collect eggs, hatch the eggs. So you have to be prepared to take care of them for their entire life cycle. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about animals. Let's talk about life support systems. On you know, Of course, those are critical, whether you're talking about someone's home aquarium or someone's pond or the many exhibits you have at the uh, Florida Aquarium. Which animals would you say have the most advanced or complicated life support at your aquarium and, and why? I would say probably the least tolerant to change are the corals. And we do a fair bit of work with corals, both here at the aquarium as part of our mission, but also at our Center for Conservation in Apollo Beach. So we're talking about an animal that's incredibly sensitive to the amount of minerals in the water, the temperature, 
the amount of food. Uh, it needs enough food, but not too much food. And then with uh, a lot of these corals, uh, like the staghorn coral, the acropora that we work with, uh, you add in the fact that they're also photosynthetic, and so all of a sudden light becomes an issue. So making sure that all of those pieces match the exact specifications for the animal's health and growth uh, is definitely a challenge. Now I have to talk a little bit about some uh, relatively recent celebrity that you garnered uh, working with one of your uh, animals there. You became a little celebrity nationally with uh, leafy sea dragon work. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the issue that was going on with the leafy sea dragons and kind of what your uh, thoughts were and your solution? Sure. So uh, we actually got three juvenile leafy sea dragons back in uh, April of this year. and. Um, these basically, uh, to paint a picture for you, they're uh, in the same family as seahorses, but they're super long and stretched out, and then they look like someone covered them with sargassum weed. So they have these beautiful long fronts. They're probably one of the most elaborate looking fish anywhere in the world. So our three animals came in pretty tiny. Um, they're almost planktonic, so they just sort of float around and then opportunistically eat little uh, animals out of the water column. And as they started to grow and get a little bit larger, they were only about four inches long when they came in. We noticed they were having more and more trouble doing that floating part. So they were spending more time swimming up and then drifting down sort of over and over again. And that got worse as they got bigger. These are not strong swimming animals. They're, uh, they're designed, they're evolved to sort of be like almost little astronauts. So they're supposed to be totally neutrally buoyant. They just sort of hover there in the water column like a piece of weed. And then they just have some little tiny fins to help them make little attitude adjustments and move around. But they're not going to swim against a current or anything like that. They're not like a tuna or a, a salmon. They eventually reached a point where they were spending so much time swimming upwards to stay off the bottom that they weren't able to actually take the time to feed themselves. Uh, and so it was at that point we realized that there probably was something wrong with all three of them. We did go ahead and take radiographs and we uh, identified their swim bladders were not developing normally. So if you're not familiar with a swim bladder, it's basically an air-filled balloon that sits sort of in the middle of the animal's body, and they have the ability to add and remove gas from that balloon to change their position in the water column. So they can make themselves positively buoyant and rise to the top, or negatively buoyant to sink. And they're, at some point in their developmental process, those swim bladders missed some sort of trigger and did not inflate normally. And so these guys weren't able to make themselves neutrally buoyant. So what did you do with them? So when we realized what was happening, we had a, a fairly lengthy discussion. These are considered very, very sensitive, delicate animals. Traditionally, people don't do a lot of hands-on work with them because they're considered so fragile. But as we watched the progression of their uh, condition, we realized that there probably wasn't any other way this was going to end. They were eventually going to exhaust themselves. Uh, they were already losing weight. Uh, and body condition. This didn't seem like something that was going to turn around. And so we went ahead and used a technique. I certainly didn't invent it. A number of people have, have done work using small rings of neoprene or wetsuit material to provide buoyancy to animals, uh, seahorses included. Most of those cases, however, are animals that get sick and lose buoyancy, pro have buoyancy problems as a result of that. And those usually don't go very well from a resolution standpoint. These animals just had, we believed, a mechanical problem. They just weren't floating right. And so we started building little tiny, uh, we call them buoyancy control devices. They're basically little life vests. Figure out how to attach them safely to the animals to give them an approximation of that, that lift that the swim bladder should be providing them. I have uh, been handcrafting these for about uh, almost six months now. We've done uh, about 15 or 16 different versions. So I've gotten pretty fancy with it. But the great news is that they've handled it really, really well. 
We work on them about twice a week. That includes bringing them over, checking them for any signs of abrasions or lesions, and then constantly updating the dimensions and techniques we're using for these harnesses. Uh, it's very much a work in progress. This is one of those things they don't make seahorse uh, life vests, so we're sort of learning this as we go along. But they're actually doing really, really well, and that's that's been exciting to watch. It's great, great to hear, definitely. So, so are you getting kind of phone calls from uh, leafy sea dragons all over the world asking them to make you a little life vest? We're not there yet. I'm waiting to brand it. That's really going to be yeah, that, okay. for a, maybe a, a Nike promotion. That makes um, sense. With a little yeah. swoop on there. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. So, no, that's great. And yeah, definitely uh, enjoyed seeing all the little news clips about you and, uh, and that the contraptions you designed to help them out. So, for satisfying uh, medical or surgical fish cases that you thought would be kind of interesting to talk about? Sure. Well, we were talking about things that we see in uh, private practice versus in aquarium. One of the things that seems to be universal is um, uh, foreign body obstruction. So an animal eating something that it's not supposed to. Uh, so we have a little porcupine puffer fish in our bays and beaches gallery that wasn't acting normal, spending time sitting on the bottom, not eating. Puffer fish are usually so food motivated that when they see the, the biologists walk past holding the food container, they'll actually follow them around the side of the tank. And so something was off with this animal. And we started to ask some questions, and it turned out that a couple days earlier, this little fish had stolen a piece of food that was meant for a much, much larger lobster that lives in that exhibit. And so we went ahead and uh, took an x-ray, and uh, sure enough, this animal had an obstruction. It had eaten a really big chunk of uh, a fish that was full of a lot of bones, and it didn't chew thoroughly. And so he actually got obstructed with uh, with the uh, fish bones. And so the resolution was similar to uh, what you would do in, with a dog or a cat that ate something they weren't supposed to. Uh, we did a barium series using contrast dye to actually wash the stuff through the GI tract. And then fortunately, we didn't have to go to surgery for this one. I was actually able to go in with an endoscope. This is a small camera on the end of a, a long stick that you can place into uh, small places to get uh, an image of what's going on inside. And so we were actually able to pass this scope into the GI tract, find instruction, and then manually remove it and flush it out. Uh, it took a fair bit of work to get all the bits and pieces out, but as soon as they were out, that fish was uh, back to acting like its normal self. So I guess for people that don't know, um, I'm assuming you had to knock it out and, and that sort of thing. How, and how long did it all take? So we can do anesthesia just like uh, just like they would with your uh, with your pet. Obviously, the big difference with most of our animals is that they have to breathe water rather than uh, than air. So we actually have a recirculating cart that pumps water dosed with anesthetic up onto the top of the table. Uh, we can ventilate the animal over the, uh, into the mouth and over the gills, and then it drains back down into the pump and, uh, and continues circulating. So we can do these procedures pretty much anywhere in the aquarium. We'll go tank side since it's much more work to bring the animal all the way back up to our exam room. That particular procedure took probably about 45 minutes just because it was a lot of teeny tiny little bone pieces that were getting stuck in the in the uh, wall of the intestine. But uh, this is uh, some, a tool that we can use in a lot of places. We'll take it out to uh, off-site exhibits if there's an animal somewhere else that we need to work on. We probably do more fish anesthesia using our recirculating cart than I do the more traditional gas anesthesia for air breathers. Cool. That's cool. So let's go to um, your big love and talk a little bit about the aquatic inverts. 
Actually, you know what? Let, I actually forgot. I wanted to ask you first about the, uh, I, I think you still call it the Center for Conservation, right? Where you do have a lot of invert work over there. Can you tell us a little sure. bit about the Center for Conservation and what's going on in your role? Sure. So the Center for Conservation has been in the works for quite some time, and it's a multi-organizational partnership. So the land that we're on is from Tico, uh, Tampa Electric Company. Uh, they generously uh, leased it to us. And then we're also a partnership with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And so there's a couple different things that are out at that site right now. The first and uh, most uh, the coral greenhouses. So we currently have two what we're calling coral arcs. And these are supporting some work that the aquarium has been doing in the field with a number of other partners for several years now, looking at land-based propagation and growth of endangered coral species uh, in order to get them back out into uh, into the field. So uh, the species of particular interest that we're working on is the uh, staghorn coral, Acropora cervicornis. And uh, we've actually made some pretty big strides in the last couple of years to the point where we're uh, getting ready to start outplanting these animals back into sites out in the lower keys. We're also doing some work with diadema urchins in conjunction with the University of Florida. So this is a pretty cool looking sea urchin species that unfortunately was wiped out pretty extensively back in the 90s. And the loss of this animal as an herbivore on the reef has had a whole bunch of uh, sort of domino effects, making it harder for other uh, groups of animals, including corals, to thrive uh, in environments where they used to be. So there you have some students working on, uh, again, trying to, to propagate at large scale these sea urchins so that these can be started to get outplanted as well. The newest system out at the Center for Conservation is our sea turtle care building. That's actually coming online right now. Uh, we've been driving back and forth for the last uh, couple weeks. Uh, water's in the systems and uh, hopefully as soon as we're done with our inspection we'll be able to start managing turtles out there. If you can imagine we currently have about two to three thousand gallons worth of space for turtles here at the aquarium and the systems out at the center for conservation are about thirty thousand gallons of uh, turtle holding space to work with so it's going to really dramatically increase the number of animals we can uh, we can rehabilitate at one time and i was actually over there recently and i, I guess you guys ha you have something unique as well they're called uh, i guess it's a deep dive tank can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, so in addition to the more traditional, smaller systems that you would rehabilitate turtles in, you know, the classic above-ground fiberglass pool, we have uh, the turtle dive tank. So this is, uh, I think it's about 15 by 20 rectangle, and it's about 11 feet deep, large concrete pool. And I do believe it is the deepest sea turtle rehab dive testing system in the state of Florida. Um, so this is really exciting. A lot of times turtles take a very long time to rehabilitate. So it's not uncommon to get an animal that takes six months to a year to fully recover and get to the point where they're ready to be released. Uh, and obviously it's really hard to keep up their muscle strength, their exercise, make sure that they're able to hunt for and, and uh, obtain food when you're working with them in a little system like that. So the hope is to really use this to A, manage very large turtles, uh, and B, as sort of a, a last stop testing run to make sure that the animal is going to be able to do all the turtle things it needs to do before we put it back out into the wild. Cool. So um, let's talk a little bit more then about about inverts. You um, obviously really enjoy them. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about your fascination and also maybe skip to any in fun or interesting cases that you've had involving inverts? Sure. So, we, as I said, there's a lot of invertebrate stuff going on out at, uh, at the Center for Conservation. And you know, we were talking about challenges and, uh, and highlights of the job. There's a lot of people that know a whole lot about coral. Uh, husbandry is 
99.9% of, uh, of what you do uh, with those animals. And if everything is perfect, then then you don't have any problems. Uh, and we're lucky enough to have a, a really phenomenal team of coral biologists that are doing stuff uh, that I, I think uh, is unique in terms of the success we've been having with staghorn coral. We also serve as a holding space for uh, what are really some critically endangered species of coral. Um, there's a species called the pillar coral, Dendrogyrus, which is very slow growing. It's a boulder type coral, and they're unfortunately very susceptible to a disease that's been sweeping down along the Atlantic coast of Florida and down into the Keys. And the problem is that this coral can reproduce asexually, so it can, can split itself off and keep growing. But to reproduce sexually, it has to be within a certain distance of a coral of the opposite sex, which is all fine when uh, they're close together. But once they start dying out, they literally are too far away from each other to reproduce. And so uh, we're actually serving as a holding space for some of these coral individuals that don't exist in the wild anymore. I think we're up to 70 or 80 of these genotypes. And that, that's pretty exciting that this is an animal that literally, had we not gone into the wild and brought this back in, uh, in conjunction with our partners, this animal would be extinct at this point. So the fun part is, for the coral stuff, for the husbandry, I'm reliant on the experiences of people who have been doing this for years. But it's still exciting to see how general concepts of biosecurity, of disease management, and of treatment, the principles are all the same. And so being able to walk into a facility like this, sit down and talk through this with people who are experts in their field and still find other ways to use the veterinary side of things to provide uh, input or insight into things uh, is pretty exciting. That's great. And yeah, there's definitely been a lot of concern with all the coral issues in uh, in the Florida Keys. And I'm glad you and your folks there are uh, really taking a uh, major role in, in helping the others with that. Now, now, I've got a philosophical question for you. There definitely seem to be more and more kind of challenging views on the roles of aquariums and zoos in society. Uh, can, can you share your views on this? Yeah, that's a bit of a hot button topic there. I think at its most basic, uh, I very much understand the shift in social perceptions of zoos and aquariums, other places that keep animals in managed care. Speaking as someone who grew up going to zoos and aquariums, it absolutely drove my passion and I, to the point where I've dedicated my life to doing everything I can to learn and expand the field of knowledge so that we can take even better care of these animals. I think what a lot of people miss is that the mission of a lot of these facilities has changed dramatically from where it was 10 or 20 years ago. There's a lot of work that we do both for individual animal welfare and care as well as from a conservation standpoint that people just don't know that we do or it gets buried in the noise. Um, and I certainly meet a lot of people who say they don't believe in zoos or aquariums so that they don't go. But just walking through the gallery and watching kids or people who see something that they've never encountered before is, is really uh, fulfilling. So uh, I don't think that, you know, there are, there's a lot of new documentaries out there. We're able to get video images on YouTube of things that people never were able to experience before. I think there's a place for that, but I also think at the rate things are going out there, we're one of the only organizations that's really doing anything to make a difference. And I think that inspiration and giving people a sense of ownership and uh, relevance is really important. So all the political hype aside, I don't think I don't think zoos and aquariums are going to go anywhere. And I think it's going to become more and more important that we continue doing the conservation work that we're doing now. It's great. Um, so I guess uh, as we, we kind of start closing up our interview here, do you have any advice for listeners maybe looking at health careers, working at aquariums or zoos? 
Yeah, honestly, my biggest takeaway from this process, I, I've worked or spent time volunteering at a whole bunch of different places all over the world. And if you start to ask people, when I desperately wanted to be an aquarium vet, you ask everybody how they got where they are. There is no one answer. Every single person I've ever met, every veterinary technician, every vet, every biologist has a totally different background. And so it really is the passion that brings you here. And if you have a thing that you're good at or that you're already doing and you want to find a way to make that tie in with the mission of a zoo or an aquarium, there's no written job description for it. You just have to go out there and make the connection and it's going to make sense to somebody. So both for health careers or any career at a conservation-based nonprofit like this, you know, we have whole departments of people that do sales and security and marketing and public relations who maybe don't have a biology degree or ever had a pet but still get to participate and support that mission. So there's no right way to do it. There's no one path to get here, which means everything's an opportunity. That's great. Great advice. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ari Pastukian, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Ari, do you have any uh, final words of wisdom? Well, I've uh, only been here for about two years now, uh, and it's definitely been a, a bit of a whirlwind. But even two years in, I'm still staggered at the amount of opportunity there is to do something new, have a new impact find a new way of doing things and sharing that with people and so uh, it's i expect that that's ever going to stop that's going to be where i'm at hopefully for the rest of my career i think that can apply pretty widely to everybody great well thank you again very much please be sure to check out ari's web links if you have any questions comments or ideas for a show email me at dr roy that's d-r-r-o-y at petliferadio.com Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And if you're ever in or near Tampa, Florida, definitely check out the Florida Aquarium and uh, keep an eye out for Dr. Ari Pastukian. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.